Welcome back to another episode of the Next Level Minds podcast. My name is Chris Chapman, and I am your host. If this is your first time tuning in, then this is a podcast for those who want to reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life. And speaking of a next level, I want to introduce you to Magic Mind, which is the world's first productivity drink. Lately, I've been experiencing a ton of brain fog, lack of focus, and just a general tired feeling. I've tried coffee, caffeine pills, different diets, you name it, nothing has really worked. I'm thankful that I got introduced to Magic Mind because it's been keeping me at a next level ever since. It's got all of these natural ingredients like matcha, which gives you energy, adaptogens, which helps you relax, honey, which keeps you happy, and of course, my favorite of all, nootropics, which helps you with focus. One of my favorite ingredients in here is L-theanine, and that helps you with your attention span and your focus levels. And being ADHD, this is something that really comes in handy for me. I've been taking Magic Mind for about a month now, and I can see a huge difference in my productivity. I have all this stuff going on with the Next Level Minds podcast, my career, my personal brand, my family life, you name it. I'm trying to stay at the highest level possible when it comes to my productivity, and Magic Mind has significantly helped me out. Right now, I have a 40% off code to share with the listeners of Next Level Minds, and that code is NEXT20. To use it, you can go to magicmind.co slash next and then enter in the code NEXT20 to get 40% off of your order today. Now on to today's guest. I'm sitting down with Lewis Foreman, who's a serial entrepreneur who has started nine successful startups, and his company has been directly responsible for the creation of over 20 others. He also has 10 registered U.S. patents, and his current company, Inventus, uh, which is on their 21st year, what they do is that they help with product development, crowdfunding, e-commerce, all under one roof, essentially bringing that product from idea to shelf, uh, really getting that product off the ground. Uh, Lewis is filled with a ton of knowledge related to entrepreneurship, startups, business, product development, the whole nine yards there. So I'm super pumped to sit down with him and learn more. And other than that, as we like to say here at Next Level Minds, your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success. Thanks so much for taking the time to hop on the Next Level Minds podcast. That's good to see you, Chris. Glad I could uh, participate today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I know we're just talking about this, but I was talking to uh, your friend Justin earlier, and he told me to ask you, uh, what are some of your favorite tequilas to kick Uh, off the episodes? (laughs) Well, how much time do we have? Because I've got quite a few bottles. That has been been one of my, my hobbies during COVID is collecting interesting tequilas. And so I think I'm up to 69 different varieties uh, that I have here. And so did you start that all during COVID or were you versed a little bit prior? Uh, A little bit prior. I was introduced to tequila. um, You know, it's actually one of the healthier spirits. um, But, you know, most people's interaction with tequila goes back to college when you're shooting Cuervo. uh, And that is not what good tequila is. Uh, good tequila is like bourbon. You know, it has a flavor profile. It's smooth. 
some of these aged tequilas can be hundreds of dollars. There are some that are thousands of dollars a bottle. Uh, but I've, I've really uh, enjoyed tasting you know, a variety of different tequilas out there. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've always thought of tequila, right, as like it's two in the morning. Hey, last call. Let's get some tequila shots before we go home type of thing. But, uh, I was out in South end not too long ago and a buddy of mine was like, Hey, let's get some tequila just to sip on. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I forgot what he ordered, but it ended up being, you know, fairly expensive. And I was like, huh, like this is actually a, a bit similar to bourbon of something you just pick up and sip and everything. So. Yeah, it's very good stuff. And there's been some great entrepreneurial stories around tequila. You know, of course, you know, most people are familiar with Casamigos and you know George Clooney and Randy Gerber, who you know created that brand and sold it for close to a billion dollars. Uh, but there's a great story around a tequila brand called Nosotros uh, that was started by two college students at Loyola in California. Uh, it was for a business plan competition. Uh, over spring break, they flew out to Guadalajara. They found a distillery to make their product. They brought it back for the competition. They won the competition and then later entered the product in the uh, dis the distilled spirits competition in San Francisco and won like best new tequila. And uh, just a great story of, you know, two scrappy entrepreneurs, college students who started a tequila brand, you know, out of college. Yeah. What was their, uh, do you know what their differentiator was? Cause there's obviously tons of brands out there. So yeah, there are, you know, what's, what's amazing. I think there's like over 2,600 tequila brands out there. And when you think about the average, you know, liquor store may carry 50 brands, a hundred brands, even if they carry 200 brands, that'd still be less than 10% of the available brands, you know, that are being manufactured today. So it's a tough market. You really have to figure out how to di differentiate yourself. You need to figure out what that unfair advantage is. What's the hook? How are you going to get a product in front of consumers today? And, and that's really, you know, what we practice every day at Inventus Partners is you've got a great idea for a product, but what makes it unique? How are you going to get a customer to buy your product instead of buying something else? Yeah. Yeah. No, along those lines, I know you have a very impressive track record of starting multiple companies. You obviously have multiple patents under your name. You're on the board of countless companies. I was scrolling on your LinkedIn prior to this. Uh, but I do want to ask before we go into that a bit more. I mean, what were you like at 18 years old? Were you always like very entrepreneurial or, or what? Yeah. You know, I started my first business when I was 18 years old in college. Um, you know, prior to college, I had had the, you know, the, the various side businesses, right. You know, mowing lawns, uh, shoveling snow, you know, selling things. Um, but when I went to college, um, I played lacrosse at the university of Illinois. We didn't have a local supplier of equipment. Uh, this was, you know, back in the eighties. So there was no internet. You couldn't just go online and order what you needed from Amazon. And I was taking Econ 101 that semester, and I learned about this relationship between supply and demand. And what my professors explained to me is that when there's demand for a product or a service, and when the market isn't addressing that demand, there should be a business opportunity. And so rather than just sit in class and take notes, I thought, why not take action? And so I started my first business in my fraternity room, uh, and that eventually grew into a very large a screen printing and embroidery business, the 24th largest in the country that I sold and moved to Charlotte. Wow. So it grew from just out of the dorm to the 24th largest in the country? Yeah. You know, we started by selling lacrosse equipment. We quickly pivoted into selling t-shirts and sweatshirts and other screen printed apparel. Uh, you know, of course, being in a fraternity, you realize that everything in college requires a t-shirt. 
And so, you know, we, we started selling to local fraternities and sororities, then fraternities and sororities across the country, local businesses. We started developing our own apparel. And yeah, by the time I sold that business in uh, 1995, we were the uh, 24th largest screen printing company in the United States. We had over 80,000 square feet of manufacturing space. Wow. Wow. So, so two questions there. Uh, one, you mentioned the manufacturing space. I mean, how, how did you start building those relationships with those manufacturers at an early age? Cause I think that holds a lot of people back at like 18, 20. They're like, dude, I don't know anybody in this industry. You know, what, what was your thoughts there? Yeah, you know, when we first started the business, uh, we would lose use local screen printers in town to do the printing for us. So we would supply the blank garments, we would supply the artwork, and we would let a local screen printer do the, the printing. And then we realized the only way you could really deliver quality and consistency is you had to control the process. So I bought my first screen printing press, and I taught myself how to screen print. And then we bought more presses and kept growing and growing. And, you know, eventually, you know, we were producing millions and millions of shirts every single year. So it was a great business. It was a great learning experience, especially, you know, when you're in your teens, you know, and you're taking classes during the day and running a business, you know, every other hour, you know, of the day, it was, uh, it was a great experience that, you know, it's hard to, to recreate that today. Yeah. Plus I, I always love when people start businesses in, in college. Cause I think a lot more people are open to helping you, right? You're not like trying to sell them something. You're just trying to learn and at that early age and everything. Yeah. Well, not only is there a lot of resources that you can turn to as a college student, but the, but the biggest issue is you've got a built-in safety net, mm-hmm. right? You know, if, if things don't work out when you start a business in college, you graduate get a real job like everybody else. I mean, that was the whole reason why you went to college to begin with, to get a job. And so, you know, I look at starting a business in college as a relatively low risk environment. There are great resources that are available from a, you know, university standpoint, faculty standpoint, other students um, that will make it that much easier. And failure is not really a big deal when you're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Now, when you've got kids, when you've got a mortgage, when the risks are much greater, that's what keeps people on the sidelines. And sometimes they never start that business that they wanted to start. Yeah. It's like that, uh, the phrase of, you know, maybe one day never ends up being a day that you take action. So, yeah, you know, um, over the years I've been able to, um, interview some really great entrepreneurs and inventors, you know, back when we were doing the TV show, everyday Edison's. I got the opportunity to spend some time with Jeff Bezos, and this was back in 2007. So this is, you know, before Amazon really took off. Um, This is, you know, when Amazon, you know, people didn't quite understand the model. Like, why would someone buy something online when you can just go to the local Borders or Barnes and Noble and pick it up? And what Jeff said to me, which, which I remember distinctively, is he said, most regrets are acts of omission rather than commission. He was not afraid to fail. He just didn't want to wake up when he was 80 years old and wonder why he never tried. And so I think that's, you know, really true with a lot of entrepreneurs is that, you know, they keep saying, okay, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. And they're so afraid or, or, you know, paralyzed um, by the chance that they're going to fail that they never take the chance. 
Yeah. What, what would you suggest to those folks out there that, that may have some fear and they know they don't want regret, but that zero to one, I don't know if you've read that book or not, but I mean, that, that can be some of the hardest steps to make, right? It is, but you know, there are great ways today to mitigate risk. Uh, and, you know, entrepreneurship at the end of the day is about managing uncertainty, right? We can talk about risk and reward. We can talk about how entrepreneurs, you know, organize a business and accept a certain amount of risk for the sake of profit. But really what entrepreneurs are good at is managing uncertainty. They look at an uncertain situation and they try to bring order to it. And today there are ways to minimize the amount of risk. Some of it's market research. Some of it is crowdfunding. Right. I mean, the introduction of crowdfunding, reward crowdfunding like Kickstarter and Indiegogo have provided a way for inventors and entrepreneurs to get market validation before committing to manufacturing and inventory. And that's where the greatest risk is. That's when you start writing the big checks to a factory for molds and for inventory and for a warehouse. Um, so if you can get the, the pulse of the consumer early on in this process, that helps lower the chance of failure. Yeah. And I think too, we live in the glory days of, of social media, right? You can build up a brand for yourself, your personal brand, right? You know, Lewis Foreman or Chris Chapman, and you can also build up your company's brand too, before you even have that product go live, which is super unique. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there, there are just great ways out there now where you can pull large audiences, um, kind of take their temperature, see if they're warm, or lukewarm uh, around your product or service and determine whether or not there's enough demand to justify the risk that you're going to be taking on. Yeah. You alluded to this earlier um, about, you know, Jeff Bezos and Everyday Edison's. Can, can you kind of briefly describe that show? I know it was PBS, I believe. And then what, what really inspired you to start that? Yeah. You know, so this is all pre-Shark Tank. So this is back in, um, you know, 2005, um, you know, we were, we, we would get a lot of inventors coming to Inventus. Um, they weren't necessarily interested in starting a business, but they had a great idea for a product. Mm. And so we decided that maybe a show that showed the process of how do you go from that sketch on a napkin to the store shelf would actually be interesting. Not judges telling you that you're a good singer, you know, not someone throwing you off an island because you didn't complete the challenge, but something that actually showed the design, the engineering, the prototyping, the manufacturing, and then how a product launches. So in 2005, we started doing these casting calls for a TV show that didn't even have a name yet. Um, thousands of people would show up with their prototypes, and we realized that we actually uh, had something that people were interested in. So the first season launched in 2007. We did four seasons, 52 episodes. We won a couple Emmys for it. And what the show did is it chronicled the process of going from the sketch on a napkin to the store shelf. Um, each week you would kind of tune in as, you know, the inventors ideas were being developed, prototyped, manufactured. And then by the last episode of the season, week 13, the entrepreneurs would walk into Bed Bath & Beyond or PetSmart or Home Depot and their product would be on the store shelf. Mm. So it wasn't judges. It wasn't you know, a bunch of people saying, great idea, terrible idea, we'll invest, we won't invest. We actually made things uh, and we made people's dreams come true. And some of those products went on to sell tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. 
Wow. And did you just kind of think of the show like pre Shark Tank of, hey, there's really nothing out there that documents this process or? Well, back in the early 2000s, there seemed to be a reality TV show for everything, right? Singing and dancing and cooking and fashion, but no one had taken on invention yet. And so, again, you know, if there's demand for something and no one's satisfying that demand, there should be a business opportunity, you know, kind of pulling back from the Econ 101 playbook. And so, to prototype it, to determine whether or not there was demand before we assumed all this risk, we went to the local PBS station in Charlotte. We explained the concept. They said, look, if you do this, we'll air it. And so we did a casting call to see if anyone would even show up. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people lined up for hours to share their ideas with us. Wow. So let me ask you something. You just made me think about this of of inventions and stuff. So correct me if I'm wrong, but in my opinion, I feel like there's two types of entrepreneurs, right? There's the one that's like really good at the engineering kind of design concept of, Hey, this is the concept of the product. This is bringing it to life. And then there's an entrepreneur that's like, Hey, I'm going to go in front of the room. I'm going to pitch. I'm going to connect with everyone there. That's me. Like I, I, my, my brain starts thinking about engineering. I'm like, dude, I don't know what, what's going on. Uh, but then I have a buddy of mine who's really good at creation concept, all this. I mean, do you think there's that perfect blend of one and it has everything or is there usually like an, a yin and yang type thing? Yeah. Um, you know, I've always said that you need to surround yourself with people who complement your skills. There are some people who are visionary, right? Like they, they see the opportunity, but they're terrible at the day-to-day operations. You've got some people who can sell anything, but they can't make it, you know, or they can't figure out how to do it. Um, so, you know, very rarely is an entrepreneur all by themselves. Normally there's a team around the concept and you've got to, you got to support, you know, you need that built-in support system. Yeah, I agree. Versus like, Hey, I'm, I'm good at sales. I'm going to surround myself with five other co-founders who are also good at sales. It's like, no, maybe someone who's good at product design, someone who's good at X, Y, Z, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. So uh, with Edison, you know, what's uh, Edison Nation Medical? I believe you have a partnership with, with Atrium, right, on that? Yes. Yeah, so um, so Everyday Edison's was kind of the first piece of it, you know, the TV show. And that we ran from 2007 to 2012. Then we built an online marketplace called Edison Nation, which basically took the process of the TV show and just brought it to an online community where you didn't have to get in line for hours and pitch your idea to be on a TV show. You could just submit the idea online to analysts who would review the idea. We built that to the largest independent inventor platform in the world. We sold that company back in 2018 and it became a public company. Um, And Edison Nation Medical was very similar uh, in that it was a healthcare focused opportunity where instead of ideas for basic consumer products, we would look at ideas for healthcare. Um, It it was a project that we did with with Atrium. Um, Ultimately, we realized that the time that it would take to go from, you know, uh, an idea in a doctor's mind to an actual FDA approved product was probably a little bit too long and too expensive to make it, you know, viable. But we learned some great lessons along the way and had some really great um, assistive living products, um, durable medical equipment products come out of that relationship that have gone on to, uh, to do quite well. And you had that, that partnership, right. With Carolina's medical or which is now atrium, right? Yeah. So, um, they lived in our building for, uh, for about 10 years. Uh, and now obviously with, um, 
with Atrium building out their innovation um, facility, they're, uh, you know, with the medical school, they are building a new facility. And, and now we're excited because we have Novant uh, as our innovation partner. And so they've moved into 520 Elliott Street with us, just had their ribbon cutting a couple of weeks ago. And they've got a real vision for what they want to create. Uh, Angela Yoakum and Paula Kranz, I mean, they just have this, you know, uncanny ability to see, you know, what the future holds for, for healthcare. And they realize that they need to have a resource uh, to be able to uncover uh, and, and help commercialize some of these amazing healthcare innovations. Yeah. How, how did you set up that partnership, you know, back in the day with Carolina's Medical? Because the, the reason I asked is I think now currently in 2022, I think Atrium, which is now, of course, Carolina's Medical, I think they're the largest employer in, in the Charlotte area. And it's like, I feel like you kind of went after a Goliath there of like, hey, let's partner with them. I mean, was that difficult or did you know somebody really well on the inside or... You know, it, uh, honestly, it, it was uh, happenstance. Uh, I was speaking at a conference and mm. someone from uh, Atrium or at the time Carolina's Medical Center was uh, in attendance and they uh, asked if we would be interested in, you know, exploring ways to help commercialize, you know, some of their uh, ideas that come from doctors or nurses or other healthcare practitioners. Uh, and that, you know, obviously is going back over 11, 12 years ago. Uh, so that's how it all began. But there's no shortage of great ideas. I mean, what, what's exciting about the innovation, what has me, you know, um, excited about the future is that people are always coming up with a better way. People are constantly questioning the status quo and saying, why do we do it this way? And is there a better way to deliver a different outcome? And as long as we continue to be innovative, there will be new technologies, new resources, new services that will make life better for all of us. Yeah. Do you think along those lines, I know we're moving super quickly. I mean, just with the way technology is going right now, uh, do you think there's any slowdowns to where we're heading with innovation or what are your thoughts there? No, I really don't. Um, you know, if, if you look at the evolution of technology over the last, let's say, 300 years, 200 years, you know, it kind of went pretty slow. And then all of a sudden it just spiked, you know, the hockey stick curve. And it's getting faster and faster because we have these enabling technologies that all of a sudden, you know, multiply the number of new products that come out. You know, you look at what, you know, we wouldn't have half the companies, you know, that, that are, are unicorns say if it wasn't for a smartphone, right? You know, the, the smartphone enabled so many different businesses. 5G is enabling all these connected devices. Uh, there are just all of these advancements that are happening in the market that have this multiplier effect on innovation. And so just when you thought, okay, well, you can't deliver this, some new technology comes out that makes it not only possible, um, but completely disrupts everything that was in it, you know, in before it. Yeah. That, that's interesting. You say that. Cause it's like, think about just the concept of an iPhone. I mean, it's, it's, everyone has one, but I mean, it's literally a whole damn computer in your pocket. Yeah. Right. I mean, you think about, you know, I've, I've always been a road warrior, always traveling, flying all the time, but you think about what you used to have to travel with, you know, a GPS Garmin device, you know, a camera, a tape recorder, 
um, a address book, you know, a phone, obviously, um, you know, all of these devices, a laptop, you know, to connect to, you know, to do your work and everything was replaced, you know, with one device. And yeah. so, you know, back then it's, it seemed remarkable today. It's just take it for granted. It's like, what's next? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've even forgotten my laptop in between meetings where I'd had like maybe a two hour gap, like, oh, let me just bring my laptop to Starbucks or something. And then I've literally just had my phone and been like, well, I'm doing the emails. I'm going to CRM, like I'm on our drive, like just doing everything. And of course it's a little bit tougher, right? Cause the screen is yay big versus a laptop's, you know, 20 inches. But the fact that you can just do all that on your phone is still, is still crazy to me. Yeah. Um, uh, along like differentiation, I know you talked about at the very beginning tequila brands and how there's a ton of them out there. Um, not necessarily with tequila brands, right? But like, how how can you really find your differentiation? I mean, you're you're not the only entrepreneur I've had on this podcast. It's like you got to find a way to differentiate. And I don't mean to ask you a really broad question because I know every single product and service is different. But I mean, what what would you suggest out there? You you, you got to find your unfair advantage. You got to find mm-hmm. something that's going to set you apart from the competition because the reality is. As consumers, we have everything that we need, right? So all of our basic core needs are being met. So what we have to figure out as an entrepreneur is what is it about the product or service that we've created that's going to make a consumer want to purchase it? Because we're at a huge disadvantage right from the very beginning because there's already an incumbent. Someone is already selling someone a product that meets the needs that they have. And we've got to go in there and convince them not to buy our product, but to not buy what they were buying before. That's tough, right? And so the good news is that it's getting a lot easier to get consumers to try new things because retailers have made it so easy. If you buy a product, whether it's from a brick and mortar retailer like Walmart or Target or an online retailer like Amazon, if you're not completely satisfied with what you bought, you return it. And no one says no, right? I mean, the the retailers have given every consumer permission to try something new and different. And so it's leveled the playing field for you or for me as entrepreneurs to say, you know what, I've got a product that maybe is better designed or maybe it's more efficient, maybe it's better for the environment, Maybe it delivers a better outcome. Maybe it's just less expensive, but try it. And if you don't love it, return it. Yeah. And that, no, that's really cool. I mean, it goes back to just how easy it is now with, with technology, right? If you don't like it, you can return it. I mean, the amount of things I've returned on Amazon is ridiculous and it's so easy. Just buy, click, return. And then Amazon even has a set up where it's like, you get your money back sometimes before it's even returned back to the warehouse. So as soon as, as, soon as they get UPS verification, that's been dropped off. Yeah. Um, they're giving you credit so you can buy something else. Yeah. They put credit your account. So you're like, Oh, I might as well just buy this random knickknack. I don't need now that I have 20 bucks in here from that. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, with businesses, right? I mean, you've exited multiple companies, right? I mean, I'm sure it hasn't been that easy. I mean, what are some failures or setbacks you've really had throughout your career? Uh, I mean, if, if an entrepreneur says he hasn't had some failures or setbacks, <laughs> right. he's either lying uh, or he's playing it too safe because failure is a part of the process. And you just have to understand that 
Failure is not terminal. Failure is not a terrible thing. If you learn something from the failure and you don't make that same mistake again, that's good. And when you are failing, that means you're getting really close to disrupting the market, right? You're you're close to coming up with something that is going to be game changing. And so, you know, if you learn something from the experience and, you know, some of the lessons I learned early on from failures was uh, around having good partners. Uh, some of the, the lessons I learned was not chasing bright and shiny objects and thinking that you could do everything, you know, stay focused on your core business. Uh, I learned that you can't do everything yourself. You got to have great employees and you got to have great partners in your business. And so you make mistakes, you learn from those mistakes, and then hopefully you get better at the process. Yeah. And it's just iterations, right? Hey, this didn't work. Let's try something else. Um, But I want to hone in on the partners a a bit. I think that's key. I mean, what what do you personally, if you were starting another company, what what would you personally like to see in co-founders and everything? Yeah, again, you you want that complementary skills, mm. right? What what I learned really early on is um, entrepreneurs tend to be attracted to other entrepreneurs who are visionary, right? And if you get a bunch of visionary founders, you come up with great ideas, but you get nothing done. And so, if you've got that visionary founder, you need a operations founder. If you've got a great sales guy, you need a, someone who's really good at the day to day business. Um, you need the people who can, you know, do the things that you're not necessarily great at, because otherwise you get a bunch of guys together and you just dream and you never deliver. Yeah. And and anyone can dream or talk about an idea, but it's the select few that actually take action on it. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm really fortunate in my company that I, I've got a group of guys that I've been, you know, with for nearly 20 years uh, and they provide, you know, all of the uh, complementary skills that, that I can't, or am not great at delivering myself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What, um, within products in general, right. I mean, in your mind, I know you have a bunch of different patents. What, what is that process like? Is it just fill out an application wait? I mean, what is that like in your lens? Well, you know, patents are used for a lot of different things, yeah. uh, but, you know, ultimately a patent prevents others from making, using or selling what you've created. <laughs> and so it's an exclusionary right that you have. It doesn't give you the right to necessarily sell your product, but it does keep the competition out of your space based on what your claims are. And so, you know, we use intellectual property as the foundation for a business. You know, if it's something that you can build a company around and, and it's a property, right? So it's something that's tangible that can be sold or licensed. There's real value around that. The the process of filing a patent starts with doing a good search. Mm. You don't start filing patent applications until you've searched the prior art. So search Google, search the USPTO website, see if there's anything similar to your idea before you even begin the process. And then once you've done a certain amount of, you know, on your own searching, then find a great patent attorney. And we're fortunate in Charlotte, there's some great patent firms. Uh, they'll help in writing the application. And you know, it takes a couple of years typically to have the exam, the application examined and issued, but ultimately it's gonna be an asset that may be the most valuable asset you ever own. Yeah, along the lines with, uh, with patents, it, would you suggest technology for that too? Let's say you had a CRM company you're trying to build, there's 
hundreds of CRMs, is it worth doing a patent then? Or is it like, Hey, there's already so many. I mean, well, it depends, you know, software is tough. Uh, software is tough to patent. It's tough to enforce. Um, business models are possible. Um, most patents are around kind of physical, mechanical, functional products. Not to say that you can't file in those other areas. In fact, there's reasons to file in that, you know, as uh, it, maybe it's window dressing, maybe it's to, you know, keep the competition out of your space or, you know, off guard, uh, or maybe you've really come up with something that is not known. Uh, it's novel, it's useful, um, and therefore patentable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, li- I like that a lot. I think, uh, I think a lot of times, again, it's just actually putting in the work to, to say, Hey, is there something similar searching it? Not just throwing patents out. Like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs and inventors make is that they, they don't see their idea on a store shelf and they just assume, well, no one's ever thought of it before. And then because they haven't seen it in a store, they assume that it can exist. You know, I had a, a local entrepreneur come to me uh, just a few days ago, you know, and he, he shared with me this great idea that he'd been working on. And within 20 seconds, I found exactly what he was talking about on Google. I just typed in kind of a description of what his product was to do. And sure enough, there was a picture of it. And I sent it to him. He's like, where'd you find that? I'm like, I just typed in these five words and it popped up. So just because you can't find it at a store doesn't mean it hasn't already been developed. Yeah. We live in a big world. And, you know, remember a U.S. patent, the novelty requirement is not novel in the U.S. It's novel in the world. So, you know, the only way you can get a patent is, is you've got to show that no one in the world has ever come up with the same idea. So you're, you have 20 under your belt, right? Or I think that I am an inventor on at least a dozen, um, but we've been involved in the development and monetization of hundreds and hundreds of patents. Yeah, so uh, the twelve, the twelve that you have, not the ones that with Inventus, but were those all novel ideas that, that just haven't been seen before? Or? Yeah, you know, they uh, some of my first patents were around sports protective products. You mm-hmm. know, remember I played lacrosse. Um, and so some of the, the concepts were around custom fit soccer shin guards and baseball forearm guards and catcher leg guards. Um, and so sometimes, you know, it, it's good to invent in a space that you understand and you know, you question, well, why is this being done the way it is? And is there a better way of doing it? Uh, and then sometimes you invent for a business. And that's what we do at Invent as Partners. You know, we have helped develop thousands of products um, for startups and entrepreneurs and large fortune 500 companies. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, our job is to solve problems and take an idea and turn it into reality. Yeah. With at Inventus, do y'all specialize in any particular industry or sector or? We, We have two really strong verticals. One is in the consumer product space. So the stuff that we use every single day. Um, and then the other space is healthcare, uh, sort of health-related products, anything from surgical and medical products all the way down to home health-type products. Yeah. 
Yeah. What's, uh, and, and you've been doing Adventist for t- coming up on what, 20 something years? Yes, right? We, uh, we celebrated our 20th anniversary in, in uh, November of last year. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is pretty amazing, right? You know, the, the, most businesses don't make it, you know, three or four years and 80% of businesses don't even make it to their eighth year in business. Um, so to be able to, you know, start a company and grow that company and have an amazing staff um, and still be around 20 years later means that, you know, we're, we're providing a good service to our customers. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, would you say the things that have really kept y'all in business is just the service you provide, the people you've surrounded yourself with or. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think it's a combination of all of the above, right. Yeah. You know, you got to have a, a compelling service. You got to do great work. Uh, you got to have great customers and you have to have great employees because, you know, they are the ones that make it happen. Yeah. And I'm sure in 20 plus years of business, you've seen a lot of entrepreneurs and founders. Uh, so what do you think separates a great founder, a great entrepreneur, just from an average, you know, good founder, good entrepreneur? Wow. That, you know, that's a really interesting question. Um, sometimes it's, sometimes you misjudge people, right? You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you look at someone, you're like, they'll never make it, but they tend, you know, they end up becoming an amazing leader because they're able to, um, address maybe their shortcomings by hiring people that are better than them or filling holes um, that they can't fill themselves. And then you also come across people who you look at and you're like, I would bet on that jockey any day. Um, But then for some reason, they get distracted by the bright, shiny objects and don't deliver. Um, But, you know, nine out of 10 times, you know, I would tell you that bet on the jockey, not the horse. Um, if, if you've got a good founder, if you've got a good technical team with a good idea, they will be more successful than a mediocre team with a great idea. Yeah. So invest more into the jockey rather than the, the horse is what you're saying. That's cool. Now, probably should have thought about that, you know, last weekend, you know, when uh, <laughs> my Kentucky Derby bets. So didn't quite I, uh, I, I actually won. I, I I didn't have money on that particular horse, but I did a little like random drawing with my family and I just happened to get the horse that got pulled out of the race. So I had the backup uh, <laughs> and like ended up winning like 25, 30 bucks, nothing, nothing substantial at all. But I was like, man, what are the odds of like, actually getting 25 that? or $30? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, this is actually like the second year in a row we've won this little family thing. And my parents are like, yeah, we're not going to do this again because you guys keep winning. So um no. So al- along those lines, uh, I know you're also a board member of a number of different organizations uh, and the event that we actually met at, you were talking about being a board member and, and all that stuff. I mean, wh- what do you think makes a great, great board member? Is it similar to the entrepreneur of having, you know, complementing skill sets and everything? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, you know, a good board brings a, uh, a number of skills to a company uh, from a variety of different capabilities, you know, whether it's legal or finance or manufacturing or import export or uh, innovation. And so, you know, boards can be a really valuable resource for companies. You know, when you're a startup, it's good to have an advisory board. Uh, it's non-fiduciary. Uh, typically, startups don't have any money. So, you know, maybe you give them some stock uh, in the company, which is readily available, um, but getting some, some experienced people who can 
not necessarily question your decisions, but help support your decisions and be a sounding board is really valuable. Uh, but, but the real value that a, a board brings is connections and experience. We've seen it, we've done it. And so, you know, why make the same mistake twice when you can learn from your board? How, how do you think as a startup, right? If you're just a young founder with two other young founders, I mean, how, not how do you go about finding the advisory board because there's there's the internet, right? It's just searching, but like, how do you sell them on something that's not yet created? Because I, I ran into that when me and two co-founders were trying to start our travel app. It was like, hey, we really need some help. We really need to learn. And people would be like, well, I want to see like an MVP first, or I want to see this on the app store first. And we'd be like, that's why we need your guidance. You know, like, what would you suggest there? Yeah, um, you know, I, I look back at my own experiences of being recruited to board positions. Sometimes it's someone that you meet at an event. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, maybe it's a pitch competition, or maybe it's um, you know some sort of a demo day where you know there are a bunch of people presenting, and so you meet people that way. Some is referrals. So you know you may be introduced to a founder because of industry expertise. Some of it is a recruitment process. So, I mean, there are companies who go out there and they try to, you know, recruit board members to fill specific needs. But, you know, it's, you got to identify what are the roles that you're really looking for? What are the skills that you're trying to, to attract? And then, you know, throwing a net out there and trying to find them. Yeah. Would, do you think like someone with a finance background is early to bring on if you're trying to get funding yeah. relatively soon or is it just having someone with, you know, who's raised capital before would be a great, you know, yeah. resource to have on your board as would be, you know, someone who understands the legal and regulatory issues around raising capital. Um, you know, it's always good to have someone who has a good sales and marketing background. It's good to have someone who's got a good operations background. But that event that that you know I, that we met at was a, a PDA, mm -hmm. uh, the Private Directors Association, and they'll do board searches. So mm -hmm. you know, if you were looking to round out a board, PDA has a list of thousands and thousands of directors who are on private boards. Um, and so they send out an email uh, to their list and saying, you know, this company is looking for your know, directors and you can apply. And that uh, and, and that's usually just equity, right? As you mentioned, for those first initial ones. Or, yeah. yeah. So a lot of it depends on how established the company is. You know, if a company is looking to put together more of a fiduciary board, uh, normally there's some level of compensation. Uh, it could be just a, a fee per board meeting. It could be an annual retainer. It could be equity. Uh, it, a lot of it just depends on the size of the company. Yeah, but but like initial stages of hey, product design, crowdfunding mode is that usually more equity, right? Yeah, if you're if you're an entrepreneur starting up a business and you want to put together some sort of an advisory board, you you aren't going to be able to pay out a whole lot of cash. Yeah. So the best thing to do is just respect the time that these advisors are providing and maybe providing them with some stock. Yeah. That may never be worth anything, but it's quite possible that stock will be worth a lot one day. Is there a particular uh, percentage that's like kind of a magic number? Or is it really too tough to tell? It, it really depends. I mean, yeah. I've seen a lot of situations like one or 2% mm -hmm. per board member. 
Gotcha. Yeah. I was just wondering in case anyone out there is listening. They're like, okay, that's cool. Like, do I start at 20%? Do I do half percent? Do I do one? Uh, if, you were, up, yeah. if you were, you know, bringing on three to five advisory members for your board and you ended up giving up, you know, three to 10% of the company, uh, that would probably be worthwhile. And, and in many cases, what happens is, is those advisors end up becoming investors. Yeah. Especially stock for, for the time that they've put in and they might be writing those first checks for the seed round or making introductions to people they know uh, who become investors. Do do you think you can get to that level of, you know, having the advisory raising funding, like still in the eight to five, or is that when it's like, Hey, I might need a jump if I'm, if I'm raising funds. I don't know what's your thoughts are there, but yeah, it just depends on the business. I mean, I've, I've seen some companies that are just so time consuming that you you can't do anything but run the business. And then there are some business models where the founder is able to run everything in just a few, few hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. It all goes back to the company made that easier. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. So uh, what, what do you got going on with Inventus? Like, I'd love for you to highlight everything that y'all have planned. I know you talked about the, the 20th year and all that stuff. So I'll let you take it from there. Well, it's uh, Inventus has been, you know, so much, so much fun because, you know, besides the fact that you get to work with great people, you get to work with great clients and you get to see the outcome of all your work, you know, in a physical product that ends up launching. Um, so, you know, we're now in our 21st year of business, which is, which is a lot of fun. Um, it's gratifying to see some of our younger, you know, members of the team taking on more responsibility within the company. Uh, we definitely have a growth plan moving forward. So we're, we're starting to look at a couple acquisitions. Uh, we feel like now's the time we got a pretty solid foundation, you know, if, if we're going to grow it um, and grow it at a more accelerated pace than what we've done over the last 20 years, now would be a good time to do that. Yeah. Where uh, at this point, you know, 10 years ago, did you have that goal of, Hey, 10 years from now, I want to be looking at some acquisitions and stuff like that. Um, We really weren't looking at a whole lot of acquisitions 10 years ago, but we've always been opportunistic. And so we've always uh, looked at situations and said, okay, does it make sense for us to, you know, invest in this. And so the Inventus business model is unique in that instead of building a company to grow it and sell it, we've experienced those liquidity events, those exits by taking equity or royalties in many of our clients' projects. So we're able to continuously see some sort of um, outside revenue coming in from projects. So instead of just charging a client for our services, collecting that money and then being done, we may defer some of the expenses that the client would pay us in exchange for a royalty that we continue to receive long after the project's finished. Yeah. I feel like that's how you can continue to stay in business of just having that continuous royalty cash flow come in and everything, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a nice situation to have. Obviously, you know, if you're going to plant lots of seeds, you need to have a lot of patience uh, because it's going to take time for those seeds to sprout and turn into something that you can monetize. But we've been doing it 20 years. So, you know, we've, we've got con- a continuous crop every single year. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but no, along those lines, what what drives you, by the way? I know you've sold, you know, multiple companies. And I mean, you could have probably retired X number of years ago. I mean, what's kind of your why behind and your purpose of what you're doing? You know, I as long as I'm still excited about what I'm doing, I'll keep doing it. Um, you know, I, I've 
I, I get a lot of satisfaction on seeing the company grow and, and seeing um, you know my partners and my you know colleagues taking on more responsibility and, and taking a more uh, active role in the company. Um, but I also am a firm believer that you got to pay it forward and you got to mm-hmm. inspire that next generation of entrepreneurs. And so you know I teach entrepreneurship at Wake Forest University and, and I teach at uh, Queens University and Johnson and Wales University and I teach an intellectual property class at Central Michigan University. And so over the years, you know I'm, I'm proud of the fact that you know I've had hundreds and hundreds of students every year um, that I've been able to at least give them some of the basic foundation of entrepreneurship that maybe will turn them into an entrepreneur, but it'll definitely turn them into a better employee. Uh, and help them, you know, avoid making some of the mistakes that many entrepreneurs have made in the past. Yeah, that's super cool that you're uh, teaching at those schools. I know when I was in college, uh, I graduated in 2018, and I I remember, you know, not not too long ago having some entrepreneurship classes because that was my minor. And still to this day, think about what some of these professors who have exited businesses said, and I'm like, man, that, that, so that's really cool that you're doing that. And even if no one says, Hey, I really love this class today. It's like, I'm sure you're impacting the whole lecture hall with what, what the stuff you're saying. So. Well, I hope so. Um, you know, I'd like to believe that, um, we can all do a better job at preparing the next generation, uh, to be entrepreneurs and innovators. Yeah, man. So if people want to learn more about Inventus or yourself or just connect with you, where, uh, where would you suggest they go? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, uh, best way to learn about our company is Inventus partners.com or Inventus, uh, you know, just search us E N V E N T Y S. Um, there's so much great content on the site. Uh, you know, our staff does an amazing job of publishing lots of great articles on product development and prototyping and running a crowdfunding campaign. So that's a great way to learn about the company. Uh, can always reach out to me. It's just Lewis at Inventus.com. Um, pretty easy to find online. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can, if if we can help you, we'll definitely point you in the right direction. Yeah, man. Well, Hey, this is an absolute blast. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. You talked about inspiring young entrepreneurs. I'm inspired right now. I took like a whole page of notes while I've been doing this. So, uh, thank you for speaking with me. And of course, thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, My pleasure. It was great spending the the afternoon with you. Well, that's it, everyone. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to this week's episode of Next Level Minds. Be sure to connect with Lewis. His information will be available below in the podcast description. As a reminder, please share the show. Let's aim to impact 1 million people. And other than that, I hope everyone has a fantastic week ahead.